Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, the clock ticking for Donald Trump to appeal the Colorado Supreme Court's unprecedented decision to kick him off the 2024 ballot, as justices there now reportedly facing violent threats in the wake of the historic decision. Plus, Israel ramping up operations in Gaza as the U.S. increases pressure on its ally to lower the intensity of the war. A key meeting between a close confidant of Prime Minister Netanyahu and White House officials just wrapping. And amid an unprecedented surge of migrants at the southern border, cities as far north as New York are scrambling to contain the crisis. Populations in shelters there are exploding. We're going to talk to someone who is at the center of the battle to provide shelter. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. Any time now, Donald Trump could appeal to the United States Supreme Court after Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified him from the 2024 ballot one week ago. That decision cited the clause of the 14th Amendment that bars insurrectionists from holding office, ruling that Trump directly participated in the attack on our democracy on January 6, 2021. And time's running out. Trump has until January 4th, next Thursday, to appeal, a day before Colorado certifies the candidates ahead of the state's March 5th primary. And Trump's team has vowed to swiftly appeal. The former president taking a dark turn on Christmas Eve, ranting online about the Colorado ruling, calling it a, quote, political delusion, marking Christmas by calling for his enemies to, quote, rot in hell. In the meantime, the FBI says it's investigating reports of violent threats against the Colorado justices who decided the Trump case. They say they're working with local law enforcement to vigorously pursue all threats. I'm joined, uh, I'm joined now by Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell, who spent many years on the bench in California's Superior Court. Uh, Judge, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. I think you know, we might have expected sure. threats given the environment that we're in, which is alarming in itself. But how worried are you about these threats? Well, Brianna, all judges have an obligation to make decisions without fear or favor. But just one year ago, Chief Justice John Roberts used his annual year-end report to address the fear that judges face today. And what he said was, part of it, a judicial system cannot and should not live in fear. He was right. Uh, and the reason he said it then and it was actually a year ago today, uh, he said it because of threats of violence against the courts in 2022. So what did Congress do? Congress enacted a law that expanded security to family members of the US Supreme Court justices. That's a good thing, but it's not enough. And just ask the four Colorado Supreme Court justices who ruled that the 14th Amendment makes Trump ineligible to run. They now have targets on their robes. And I saw some of the online posts aimed at them. That it was especially violent. Things like kill judges, behead judges, roundhouse, kick a judge into the concrete. Um, and so it just brings us back to the fact that Trump's statements that politicize the courts and attack judges, 
They're the key drivers of this violent rhetoric. The man has made fear the new normal for judges in America. And the normalization of this violent rhetoric, plus, in my view, the lack of remedial action by social media platforms, are really the key and the core to the problem. So what Trump should, but he won't, tell his followers that these violent threats, the violence against judges are not acceptable and they should stand back and stand down. Now, that would yeah, be I the mean, mature and patriotic thing to do, but he's neither mature nor patriotic. He he doesn't do that. He doesn't lower the temperature. I mean, even when we see people right. do that on social media, they post something, someone goes after someone else on their social media platform. They're very careful to go out of their way. Of course, he does not do that. Are you worried, and this may be a separate issue, that that kind of thing could actually have a chilling effect on judges, on people involved in the legal process, or do you think they just tune it out? Brianna, you have really hit the major issue. I believe, well, let me put it this way. Imagine what the U.S. Supreme Court justices would think if they were inclined to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. I'll tell you what they think. They'd think, good Lord, threats and violence against me are going to ramp up. So why put myself and my family in harm's way, even if it's the right thing to do, and even if it's the constitutional thing to do? So when that happens, when it's no longer fear of God, but fear of mob, when judges' fears trump their oaths to the Constitution, our judiciary and our democracy, it, it, it just, it's almost on its deathbed. So yes, in fact, these threats of violence, these are human beings in black robes, these threats of violence actually go to the core of their very being. And of course, they're going to react to it. They're not just going to slop it off and say, oh, no, no big deal. And this is happening to judges on the federal courts, but all throughout the country on the state courts as well. That is my concern. So the four, go right ahead. I was going to say, I definitely want to ask you before um, our segment is over about election subversion and the indictments that former President Trump is facing and his legal team is citing right now his acquittal by the Senate in his second impeachment trial following January 6th, uh, claiming that Trump has already been tried for the same and closely related conduct. When you look at that argument, does that really fly to you as a double jeopardy claim? It is not, in fact, double jeopardy. It is not, in fact, legally double jeopardy. They are two distinct proceedings. They have different uh, burdens of proof. So, no, that's, again, it's just grasping for straws, and it has no merit whatsoever. So uh, good luck to them on that because it's not going to happen. The bigger issue is whether or not he can be prosecuted And his position is, well, he's just immune because that's he had a position as president and that's it. That is the key issue, not double jeopardy. Yes. And we'll see that go before the appeals court. Ultimately, we expect uh, maybe back to the Supreme Court and we'll see how that all goes. Judge, it's great to see you again. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you. And joining us now with more on the former president's legal troubles and how this affects him politically, we have Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator Paul Begala and former special assistant to President George W. Bush and former senior advisor to Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings, with us. So, Scott, tonight, you've seen it, Trump uh, continuing his scorched earth social media strategy. 
He said of special counsel Jack Smith that he should go to hell. And that's after his Christmas Day rampage where he said his political enemies should rot in hell. Again, Merry Christmas, he added. Um, Where's the line to you between rallying his base and appearing rather unhinged to any Republicans who may actually be on the fence about him, who don't want to vote uh, for Biden in a general, assuming he does end up becoming the nominee? Well, I actually don't think there's that many Republicans that are on the fence about him. I don't think there's that many Americans that are on the fence about him. They know who he is. They know how he acts. They know what he says. They know what motivates him. They know how he campaigns. They know what issues he cares about. So I actually don't think any of this is out of character for him based on what we've seen over the last few years. The only question is, is about the 46% of the vote he hopes to command in the upcoming election, because that's the number he got in the last two, is going to be enough to defeat Joe Biden. It was enough to defeat Hillary, but it wasn't enough to defeat Biden in 2020. So I I guess I just don't think that it's, there are too many people sitting out there going, well, I was going to vote for Donald Trump, but then he tweeted that thing about go to hell because some some guy indicted. I I don't think that voter uh, presently exists right now. Now, is it, is it a good thing to do? Is it uh, something we should aspire to be like on the internet? No, of course not. It's not good role model. But in terms of voter behavior, I, I find it inconsequential. Yeah, fair point. Uh, Paul, Trump sharing a post the other day, a word cloud that seemingly uh, co-signs messages of revenge, dictatorship to describe the former president's political goals. We should note this is an image that was originally from a Daily Mail survey that asked a thousand likely voters what they think about a potential Trump second term. What is this preview to you about a second Trump term as, as he puts this out there? Right. I, I will give him this. Mr. Trump is transparent. He, he wants to be a dictator. Now he says just for a day, but let's see. I, I think actually the way Democrats and Republicans running against him respond to this is important. I don't think they should just pearl clutch. Oh, he wants to be a dictator. Isn't that terrible? I think they need to turn this against him this way because every dictator uh, around the world poses as a populist. It says, I need this power for you. I think they should take that back from him. And so the only reason he wants absolute power is because himself. He wants that dictatorial power to protect himself, his legal woes, his financial problems, his business deals, his cronies, his tax breaks for his fellow billionaires. He doesn't give a rip snore about you, America. He wants that power for himself. And I think that's an important distinction instead of simply saying, oh, he shouldn't do that. It's analogous to the, this, this comment about on Christmas telling people to rot in hell. You know, I, I am a Christian. That's blasphemy. And I actually disagree with Scott on this. I think there are a lot of Christians. Who, he carried the Protestant vote. He lost my fellow Catholics to my brother Catholic, Joe Biden. There are a lot of people going to look at that and say, you know, this is our holy day, uh, our savior, the light of the world, the prince of peace. And he's using that to blaspheme and to say rot in hell. Um, I, I'm going to wait. And I'd probably be disappointed. I want to see church leaders on this. I want to, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic. I want to see my, my bishops, my cardinals speak out on this. I want to see evangelical leaders speak out on this. I want to see the leaders of our great Christian universities speak out on this. I think it can have an effect if people of good faith and my faith will stand up and say, well, wait, no, there's nothing Christian about telling people to rot in hell on Christmas Day. Scott, my money is on you saying that it's not going to matter with those voters (laughs) of that Christian denomination. So tell me if I'm wrong. This will determine if I buy a Powerball ticket or not. (laughs) No, I I think you're right. Uh, And uh, with all due respect to my friend Paul, I think that the idea that a tweet sent in December of 2023 mattering to a voter. I mean, let's take the average uh, Christian voter 
evangelical voter going to the polls next November, they're not thinking about Donald Trump's tweets from the previous Christmas. They're thinking about all the cultural issues uh, that they are worried about right now. They're worried about the, you know, the society they see around them is totally hostile to their uh, worldview. And although Donald Trump, I don't think, often models Christian behavior, I don't think they're hiring him to sing in the choir. They're hiring him to guard the doors of the church is how they would probably describe it. And so, uh, no, I think, Brianna, you're right. Paul is wrong. And uh, and that's the way it's going to be. All right. I'll split my winnings, I guess, with Scott, but also with you, Paul. There's enough. It's a big it's a big pot this time. OK, um, so this New York Times, uh, the New York Times today publishes this deeper look into Trump's plan to wield power should he win the presidency. And like you said, he's transparent, Paul. It highlights numerous priorities in a second Trump term that includes using the DOJ for vengeance against political adversaries, cutting back, funding to NATO, deploying American troops in Mexico, an American ally, even deploying American troops on U.S. soil, which, by the way, is unconstitutional outside of invoking the Insurrection Act. Do you think, uh, Paul, that that is registering with, let's say, Democrats. Do you think that Democrats are registering what Trump is previewing? I, I think they are, but I, I think, sort of like Scott said about Republicans, they're mostly baked in. I, I think, uh, again, the way to go after this is to talk about you, not him. Don't make it about Trump. He wants this power because he wants to uh, take advantage of these good people who vote for him in order to line his own pockets, feather his own nest, keep himself out of jail. You know, he was president for a while. You know what happened? He didn't build a stupid wall. Opioid deaths went from about 70,000 a year to over 90,000 a year while he was president. Uh, a million of us, of our brothers and sisters, died of COVID. While he was getting the best health care in the world at Walter Reed, when he had COVID, he was telling his supporters to inject bleach. I think this is the way to go after Trump. He wants to be a dictator because he's in it for himself and not for you. It's a very different argument than the one you usually get from my fellow Democrats who simply say, oh, isn't he terrible and he's rude? No, he's going to hurt you. He's going to take advantage of you to help himself. I think it's a much better way to go after him. All right, Scott, let's talk about, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, they think of Trump as the presumptive nominee, but he has competitors. And the landscape has been changing. I think we're all watching Nikki Haley uh, going into Iowa and New Hampshire here. But let's talk about Ron DeSantis, who has, uh, was ascendant, is now descendant. The New York Times today citing one of his closest advisors who, when asked about his presidential hopes, has, quote, privately said they are now at the point in the campaign where they need to make the patient comfortable, a phrase evoking hospice care. That is not good. Rough quote. Uh, if I may take five seconds and agree with something Paul said, I actually agree with his strategy. The way to peel voters away is to make it personal. I actually think it's how Biden peeled off some senior voters in 2020. They got the idea Trump didn't care as much about their health as Joe Biden did. And I think some of those senior voters that Republicans have relied on did go the other way. So I, I agree with, with something Very Paul said. On the DeSantis campaign, yeah, on the, on the DeSantis campaign, Look, obviously, they've reached the troubled waters phase, and I think it's terrible when advisors, you know, courageously speak anonymously <laughs> and, and, and using their most colorful uh, ways to describe a campaign. Uh, and look, he's, he's got he's to throw a miracle touchdown pass here in Iowa, not necessarily win, but get close enough to keep, to keep it rolling forward. And so it's really what I'm watching is, can he get close enough to Trump to make the case to keep the campaign moving? Because if he can't, if he gets crushed in Iowa, or if he finishes third or finishes so far back, he'll probably drop out. And if he drops out, where do you think his people are going? They're probably going, a lot of them are going to go off to Trump. So in some strange way, 
his underperforming in Iowa would be of a uh, of a detriment to Nikki Haley, even if he got out of the race before New Hampshire. So she's got a couple of problems. Where do DeSantis's people go? And then, you know, what does Chris Christie do? He says he's not getting out. Uh, she's got a couple of things that are dragging on her as she tries to catch up with Trump in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's a very good point. And look, during this holiday week, you guys agreed on something. And for that, I congratulate <laughs> do. I love Scott. And I wish him Merry Christmas. It's and a full Brianna. moon. It's a full moon in Kentucky. I don't know if it's a full moon in Texas or wherever Paul is, but it's a full moon in Kentucky. I so think we it is. I think it. that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul and Scott, thank you so much to both of you. Thanks very much, <laughs> So ahead, the U.S. military striking terrorists inside Iraq on orders of President Biden in response to an attack that injured three American troops, concerns of an escalating conflict in the region, and Ukraine claiming that it destroyed a Russian Navy ship in Crimea. Video surfacing, you see it here, of a massive fireball there on the water. What the Kremlin is saying next. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden ordering Christmas Day military strikes in Iraq after a group of militants there knows, uh, known as the Kataib Hezbollah targeted and injured three American service members, one of them critically using an attack drone. You were looking at video of the aftermath of the U.S. airstrikes, which Central Command says likely killed a number of Kataib Hezbollah militants. Joining us now with more is CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman. Oren, tell us first about this attack on the U.S. that prompted this strike. Brianna, the attack itself was carried out, according to U.S. Central Command, by a one-way attack drone or a suicide drone that targeted U.S. forces in Erbil, Iraq, so in Iraqi Kurdistan. The attack happened early in the morning on Christmas, uh, and three service members, as you point out, were injured. One of those remains in critical condition. President Joe Biden was briefed on the attack itself and was given a number of options to respond. Kataib Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy in Iraq, claimed responsibility for the attack, and that, of course, is where the U.S. targeted its strikes carrying out strikes, as you just saw the video there, on three locations in Iraq, specifically focusing on uh, the drone capabilities of Kataib Hezbollah. So trying to cut those off, those have been used, drones uh, in attacks on U.S. forces that we've seen. At this point, the U.S. has seen approximately 100 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, but most of the responses from the U.S. have been targeting Iranian proxies in Syria. It's rare uh, to see the U.S. targeting uh, groups in Iraq. U.S. Central Command says they likely killed a number of Qataib Hezbollah militants, 
uh, and that there were no civilians affected. However, the Iraqi government saying there were civilians injured in the attacks and also coming out forcefully against the U.S., calling these hostile acts that are an infringement on Iraq's sovereignty. Now, Brianna, this is important because US, the U.S. military operates in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government. So anything that upsets that is something we have to watch very closely here. Yeah, certainly. So I think we're kind of getting used to this rhythm, right, of U.S. limited responses, but frequent responses to Iranian-backed proxies and militant groups in the region. It, this initial concern that we had at the beginning of all of this, that this would broaden into a larger conflict that would rope in the U.S., is that something that you're hearing from officials? The U.S. Is, is still watching that very carefully, and you're right that the U.S. is trying to calibrate its responses to send a message and to try to deter against further attacks, that deterrence clearly not working, but also to make sure this doesn't spread into a wider regional conflict beyond the Gaza war, which the U.S. has tried to separate. That being said, we are seeing conflict in very specific areas, and one of those areas we're watching very closely is the Red Sea, where the Houthis, another Iranian proxy in Yemen, has carried out strikes on a number of commercial and military vessels, or at least tried to target them. U.S. Central Command saying that U.S. Navy assets in the Red Sea intercepted, and this is an incredible barrage, 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land attack cruise missiles launched by the Houthis. No ships were injured or no, no injuries were caused as a result of those strikes, but clearly, Brianna, this is something we're going to watch very closely. Yeah, that is something. Oren Lieberman, live for us from the Pentagon. Thank you for that report. And joining us now is retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Cedric, thanks for talking to us about this tonight. What goes into the calculus of a proportional U.S. military response like this, even as America is trying to avoid getting you know, sucked into a broader conflict? Yeah, Brianna, good evening. The, the big thing for the big ingredient for this calculus is proportionality, uh, you know, what is equal to or slightly greater than uh, the force that was used to attack us. And in this particular case, when you're looking at what happened here, uh, the strikes, one of the strikes at least that the U.S. undertook in retaliation for the Erbil uh, airbase strike occurred about 300 miles away from Erbil. Uh, so we're looking at you know different areas. We're looking at command and control nodes. We're looking at the kinds of things that would actually have an influence on the operation of Katahib Hezbollah or similar groups. And the idea is to prevent that group from doing this kind of stuff again. But as Oren pointed out, uh, this deterrence effort is really not working, at least doesn't seem to be working right now. Uh, and it will require a few more efforts like this to have at least some effect on uh, these Iranian proxies. Now, if we do get a command and control note, that could have a greater effect potentially than uh, what we're seeing at the moment, but it's still a, a long way to go before I think we limit their activities. Most of the injuries so far that we've seen in these strikes on U.S. interests in the area have been TBIs, which I, I mean, we've seen the effects of them, Cedric. I don't mean to diminish them at all, uh, but w those have been more minor than this case where you have a service member critically injured. Did the fact that a service member was injured so severely change the U.S. response to Kataib Hezbollah? And, and should it have? I think it did. Uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly what went into the Pentagon discussions and the Central Command discussions relating to this response, uh, but it's pretty clear uh, that the level of response, the frequency of response, 
uh, all of that uh, was really calibrated because a service member was so critically injured. Uh, so, you know, as you mentioned, a TBI, a traumatic brain brain injury is one thing, uh, but uh, these physical wounds, in addition to uh, these other wounds, uh, those things can uh, can really play a role in our response. And one of the key things that we're looking at is, you know, how much of our force is actually protected in these areas. And if that force protection effort is not uh, something that is actually helping our, keep our people safe, uh, then these kinds of responses will, of course, be calibrated and the level will be raised much higher than it was uh, prior to this. I want to switch to Ukraine now because you've seen the news here. Ukraine is claiming that it destroyed yet another Russian vessel when it attacked a port town uh, in Crimea. There's some new video obtained by Reuters of a massive explosion after Ukraine's strike. Let's take a look at this. So pretty amazing to see this big symbolic victory at the very least for Ukraine. But at the same time, Ukraine has all but retreated from Marinka, which is a city in Donetsk. Where does the war effort overall stand right now? So this is a really interesting question, Brianna, that has a lot of political implications here in the U.S. I, it's clear that the Ukrainians can still mount spectacular attacks like this one that we see here in Crimea. And of course, the effects are profound to take out a Russian transport ship like this, uh, which apparently had a lot of ammunition on board, given the size and level of this explosion. That makes a big, big difference. But when it comes to the actual fighting on the ground in Ukraine, that effort is basically stalled. The town of Marinka uh, is a bit of a loss for the Ukrainians. However, uh, the Ukrainians have not really given up that much territory compared to the Russian efforts against their forces. So the Ukrainians are in essence holding the line right now. Uh, how long they'll be able to hold that line, of course, is an open question. Uh, it certainly seems that they will need a lot of Western support to keep things as they are, uh, let alone take things into you know the Russian-occupied territories right now. Uh, so the way the war stands is basically at a stalemate on the ground uh, with some actions by the Ukrainians on the periphery, such as Crimea, that really have a profound effect, at least psychologically, on the Russian ability to hold those kinds of territories. Yeah, that video alone. Um, Colonel Cedric Layton, thanks for being with us. You bet, Brianna. In the meantime, uh, Israel warning of a long fight ahead as the U.S. works to convince its ally to scale down the war in Gaza. One of the few reporters granted access to northern Gaza is here with what he's witnessed on the ground. Last hour, top Biden officials wrapped up a four-hour meeting with Ron Dermer. He is a confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And a White House official tells CNN that Dermer and senior U.S. officials discussed the need for Israel to focus on high-value Hamas targets, steps to improve the humanitarian situation, and also Israel's post-war plans in Gaza. This comes after Netanyahu himself made a trip to the besieged enclave on Monday and vowed a, quote, long fight ahead, even as Gaza officials said the death toll had climbed past 20,000. Now, CNN cannot independently verify the numbers or establish how many of those include Hamas terrorists, but the scenes on the ground are horrific. And in one account from central Gaza, an official from the World Health Organization described 
an overwhelmed hospital. More than 500 people injured from an airstrike that killed 250 people. One of them, a nine-year-old boy, slowly dying from a brain injury, the result of shrapnel. And it's just a glimpse of the agony going on inside of Gaza as the civilians there contend with yet another communications blackout. Joining me now is Ronan Bergman. He is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. He's also the author of Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Uh, Ronan, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And, and you have reported that Ron Dermer, Netanyahu's advisor, has been tasked with planning for post-war Gaza. How much of that is what this meeting is about, even as Netanyahu said this weekend, the fighting's not close to ending. Well, there, there are reports uh, and some sources indicating that he was dispatched to uh, probably the closest confidant to Prime Minister Netanyahu and has a long uh, experience as an ambassador to the U.S., um, now a minister of the cabinet, and he was dispatched to the U.S., um, according to some sources, to understand why were the Israeli requests for further ammunition uh, and military gear delayed or not positively um, accommodated by, by the US, uh, one topic. The other one is, of course, what's, the, what's next for the Israelis? What's planned for what the Israelis are planning for the, the Gaza invasion? The Israelis basically assured the United States that they're going from phase two to phase three, in other words, that they're going to redeploy much of their forces inside the Gaza Strip, uh, and they will stop what they call the maneuvering phase, which basically means far less air bombing, far less exchange of fire, and more, as the U.S. demanded, a, an intelligence-derived special operation range in order to basically finish the last part of Hamas control and Hamas infrastructure, the subterranean massive network. The Israelis, when they entered the Gaza Strip, the IDF intelligence thought that they are 100 kilometers of um, tunnels. You calculate how many that is in mile. Now they believe they are 600. So double six, they were fatally wrong in their assessment. There's much more assignment, much more work for them to do. Realistically, with those uh, images on your screen, I don't think that Israel could uh, stay in Gaza for the next two years as they are planning in order to finish this, uh, destroying the subterranean uh, uh, infrastructure. So uh, when we ask Netanyahu aides, Ronan, uh, if they worry that they are creating more terrorists than they're killing, uh, which is a very real concern of American officials who are very much on the side of Israel in this, but have experience. radicalization. Yeah, that's right. They have experience uh, fighting ideologically based terrorism and sort of what it spawns. Um, those Israeli officials never publicly entertain that notion. Privately, do they have any of those concerns or are they just totally dismissing this concept, even privately? No, I don't, I don't think that, that they are dismissing it. And I don't think that uh, there are some debates in the U.S. and the U.S. government, I understand. Mm -hmm among some analysts uh, about the Israeli attempt to destroy Hamas. I, I don't think that Israelis are that naive that they can destroy Hamas. Hamas is a social movement, a religious movement. You cannot eradicate, you cannot destroy something that is also in the minds and hearts of people. But I do think that what happened on uh, October 7 was so horrific, was so robust, was so 
such a shock and humiliation for the Israeli public and for the Israeli establishment that they sort of relieved themselves, Israeli leaders, military thinkers, political leaders, army chiefs, they relieved themselves from the need to plan. They just felt that something needed to be done to counter that, uh, that threat and make sure that the people, that the survivors that were evacuated, the hundreds of thousands of people that were evacuated from the Gaza border can go back to live. Um, and it, in a way, I was asked by an American colleague, what's the Israeli strategy? Um, and I answered that when he uh, finds out what's the Israeli strategy, please let him, let him call me and tell me what is the Israeli strategy. I think that there is a, there's a lack of planning. And we also heard that Prime Minister Netanyahu has ordered the government and the cabinet and the military, or basically declined on assembling the meetings for the day after Israeli withdrawal. Who will take over? Because Benjamin Netanyahu promised that it will not be the Palestinian Authority, and he doesn't want to have a meeting dealing with that because he knows that there's no one else mm. that is suitable to take the job and govern the, the, the Gaza Strip and try to start rebuilding it after the war. Yeah, and that's why you have uh, officials with the Israeli government saying, talking about that post-war situation is premature at this point in time. There aren't really good answers at this point in time. You've also reported on Iran accusing Israel of killing a high-level Iranian military advisor in Syria. You've written a whole book on, on targeted killings. What are you learning about this? Well, th this is this belongs, I would say, to the other fronts that... Iran is trying, and you know, according to some of Iranian hiring sources who spoke with my colleague Fanas Fasikh at the New York Times, even boasting in trying to open the other fronts of the so-called Jabhal Mukawama, the existence of resistance against Israel. So while Iran is not having any kind of direct uh, exchange of fire or hostilities with Israel, it is pushing, you just uh, spoke with the general before me about the Houthis, uh, who just yesterday launched an unprovoked massive uh, missile and cruise missiles and kamikaze drones on, on Israel, all intercepted by the U.S. and Israel. But just imagine you know, what would happen if they would hit Israel, those, those, those attacks. So I think while not taking responsibility, using some kind of, I would say, we cannot language, the Israeli military spokesperson just the day before yesterday, when asked, he said, I do not comment on any reports in the non-Israeli press, but as you know, Israeli army has the, um, the obligation to defend Israeli security, which basically is, it's not pushing back, and basically is like uh, sort of taking responsibility for what happened. This was an act, Israel was, I think, trying to give a message, send a message to Iran, that while Iran is pushing other proxies to fight Israel and the US, it should not think that it is not held responsible. And Iranians, Iranian officials, the guards, the revolutionary guards, the Quds Force, they will pay the price for what is happening in even different and remote areas of the of the Middle East. Yeah, um, certainly. For the, because it happened the day before yesterday, and yesterday the Houthis attacked, I'm not sure they got the message. That's a very good point. Uh, Ronan Bergman, uh, so informative to have you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, man.
And ahead, with an unprecedented new surge of migrants at the southern border, we're going to talk to someone confronting the crisis head on in New York City. Her battle to shelter an overflow of migrants transported there next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. With officials on the southern border grappling with an unprecedented surge of migrants, a critical meeting set to take place tomorrow in Mexico. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will meet Mexico's president. And the hope is that the two sides can come up with a new agreement to help ease the border crisis. CNN's Rosa Flores is at the U.S. southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas, with the latest. Brianna, here's the reality. Border patrol is stretched thin and some border communities are frustrated. Let me start with the brave men and women of U.S. Border Patrol. These are law enforcement officers. They have badges. They carry guns. They interdict drugs. They catch the bad guys. But when there is a border surge, like the one that we've seen ongoing for several weeks now, they're reassigned to apprehend and process migrants. And normally these are men and women, uh, mothers and dads, who are turning themselves in to immigration authorities. Now, according to the U.S. Border Patrol chief, that's when cartels and smugglers take advantage of that and use that opportunity to smuggle drugs and smuggle criminals into the United States. Now, when it comes to frustrated communities, take Eagle Pass, Texas, for example, uh, the law enforcement here, the local law enforcement is being used to help with the migrant situation. One of two bridges that cross over to Mexico is closed. Now imagine being on the border, you have family on the other side and you can't go see them because it takes you hours to come back. Now the other issue is the division over the migrant situation. It's tearing this community apart. Take a listen. This crisis has just uh, torn the community apart. And, uh, and I'm on one side that says, you shouldn't put a title on an individual, they're human beings. The other side is, and it's draconian, you know. It's it's something that that uh, is disparaging as as humans. That you know, people say ugly things about other human beings, and uh, that's the ugly side. And uh, it's hard. Communities like this one have high hopes for the conversations that are going to happen between. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Mexico's president. One of the things that they're hoping for, especially here in Eagle Pass, Texas, is that legal trade and travel continue now uninterrupted. Again, there's one of two bridges that are closed here and people of Eagle Pass are hoping that after these talks, that bridge is open. Brianna. Rosa, thank you for that report. And in New York City, officials say every day about 500 new migrants are arriving and they're facing a cold reality, literally. So many of them arriving to the Northeast without proper winter clothes as they are struggling to find housing. The city says nearly 70,000 migrants are packed into emergency shelters. Thousands more are either in tents at the edge of the city 
or sleeping on the streets. Joining us now is Christine Quinn, a former New York City Council speaker and the president and CEO of WIN, which is the largest provider of shelter to the city's homeless families, especially for women and children. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for being with us this evening. You are, of course, an advocate working with migrant families. Uh, I wonder if you can just shed some light on what these families are going through, especially as we are aware of the 60-day shelter limit that is imposed by the city, and here we are in winter. You know, these individuals have demonstrated so much bravery and so much fortitude to get to the United States and then to get many of them sent here, get to New York. I mean, these are folks who've literally walked and walked through rivers to get to a place that'll be better for them and their family. And then unfortunately, they're kind of re-traumatized <clears throat> when they're thrown into the homeless situation, homeless system and a situation as a homeless New Yorker now. And far too many, particularly singles, are left out on the street waiting for help. Now, right now at WIN, we have over a thousand refugees that we are housing and taking care of, and we await uh, another building where we will do the same. But what the city is doing for families is saying that every 60 days, they have to go back to intake and reapply for shelter. It really, and I hate to say this, in a word, it's harassment. What the city hopes is that for some reason, with some opportunity, people won't return. But these are individuals who have no other option but to be in the shelter system. And what we should be doing isn't harassing them, but finding a way to expand the number of beds, expand access to permanent housing, and get these individuals the legal and other services they need, like work permits, so they can start the life that they've fought so hard for. You, you've been critical of the city's response here. You've heard the mayor, Eric Adams, he's putting blame not just on Republican governors who have bussed many of the migrants to other cities, but he's also blaming President Biden. Here's what he said today. The federal government said to New York City, we're not going to do our job, you do our job. <laughs> you take care of 4,000 people a week, Eric, you and your team. I am not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel um, from the federal government. So he said that Biden hasn't sent enough funding. As you look at this, is this a federal failure? Is it a city failure? Is it a combination? What do you think? Well, when you have individuals who've, like I said, risked their lives <clears throat> to get to the United States and they're sleeping on the street in front of the Roosevelt Hotel, it's everybody's collapse in leadership. You can't point the finger at just one part of government when that is happening. Now that said, the mayor is right that the federal government should be doing more. It was great that they gave temporary protective status to Venezuelans. They should have done more countries and they still should do more countries. They should be giving New York more money. There is no question about that. But th what the mayor isn't doing, yes, that's good. He's you know calling out the failure of the federal government. But at the same time, he needs to ramp up the city's response in a more thoughtful and comprehensive way and really recognize for better or worse, the challenge is now the city's because the federal government 
is wrongly not responding. You know, right now, the city is spending so much money putting the migrants in hotels, about $383 a night in a hotel for a homeless family. If we were to give those families vouchers that you can use to pay your rent in a permanent apartment, it's $72 a night. If we extended that benefit to undocumented people, the city would save $3 billion as it relates to expenses for the migrants. The city could do that, could get these vouchers out there if the mayor decided to, and it could be a game changer. Christine Quinn, thank you so much for being with us. This obviously continues to be a problem without an end in sight, and we'll continue the conversation. Uh, we'll be back after thank a quick you. break. Tonight, Putin critic Alexei Navalny finally found alive after going missing for 20 days. CNN's Nada Bashir has the story. One of President Putin's most famous adversaries. Relieved, exhausted, but most importantly, alive. We filed 680 requests in different Russian prisons trying to locate Alexei. For weeks, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny's whereabouts were unknown. Now, his team has located him at a remote penal colony north of the Arctic Circle, after a journey Navalny says took almost three weeks. They brought me here on Saturday night. Messages posted on social media by his aides say, I didn't expect anyone to find me here before mid-January. Navalny's team raised the alarm weeks ago after he failed to show for recent court hearings. At the time, the Kremlin stated it had neither the capacity nor willingness to monitor prisoners' whereabouts. According to Russian law, after the prisoner is being transferred to another colony, they have to notify his relatives. But we know very well that there is no law that applies to Alexei, and they will never notify anyone about uh, his whereabouts. In a statement on Monday, the director of Navalny's anti-corruption foundation said the colony in northwestern Siberia, known as the Polar Wolf Colony, is infamous for its remote location and harsh conditions. Navalny was sentenced to 19 years in prison in August after he was found guilty of extremism-related charges, which he and his legal representatives have consistently denied. This in addition to a previous 11-and-a-half-year sentence for fraud and other crimes. Known for organising anti-government street protests and using his blog and social media to expose alleged corruption in the Kremlin, Navalny has posed one of the most serious threats to Putin's legitimacy during his rule. His disappearance coming to light just days after Putin announced he would run for re-election in March 2024. It is no coincidence that Navalny disappeared exactly at the moment when the so-called sham presidential elections were announced and Putin announced that he's going to be running again for, sorry, I lost count for which, uh, which term already. And while news of his whereabouts has brought some reassurance to supporters, there is deep-seated concern over the conditions the opposition figure now faces at Polar Wolf. Neda Bashir, CNN, London. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Laura Coates Live starts now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.